Good morning, church. You know, I'm going to change what I normally say. Slip this over here. Normally I say good morning. I think every Sunday I say that, but today I'm going to say great morning. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's a great morning. This is one of my favorite weekends because it's Reformation weekend. Some of you are like, what does that even mean? There is the beauty of the last day of October, Reformation Day, where we look historically in the church where Martin Luther took his 95 Theses and put it on the door. And then the day after is All Saints Day. That's this weekend. So it's been a great weekend for me to celebrate Christ is everything. So many times we as Christians get confused where we love to say, Jesus is my all, but I like all this other stuff. It's so good in our lives to strip away all the foolishness and the things that so easily entangle us and look at Christ alone, amen? So this is a great weekend, a great Sunday. And the topic that we deal with in the gospel according to Isaiah, Isaiah pens out this drama of redemption. We are looking at the heart of prophetic literature when it deals with Christ, this passage. Before we begin looking at the text itself, I have a question for you. What names were you given? Well, of course, you were given a name at birth. I'm not sure if all of you know how you got your name. In fact, how many of you were named after someone in your family? Your first name is because of someone after, okay, someone after your family. How many of you were named after maybe a movie character? I'm the only one raising my hand, okay. White Heat, James Cagney, he was some gangster, and his name was Cody or something, and he loved his mom, and my mom said, that's my boy, and he blew up at the end or something. And, but he did say, look, mom, I'm on top of the world before he blew up, and maybe that's the mountaineer guy in me or something like that. But we were given names, and some of us don't like our names. I won't say raise your hand if you don't like your name, but I even have someone in my family who they didn't like their name, and when it got old enough, they changed, legally changed their name. How many of you have ever met someone that legally changed their name? They, just, they didn't like their name, and they just said, I'm going to legally change my name. Some of us like our names, and some of us don't. I, I love my name, Cody, and I like the meaning of it. Some meanings means pillow, but it's in the term of comfort and cushion. I like to comfort people, and Cody to me also means warrior and stuff like that, and but what about names that are given to you because of nicknames? Of course, we all have had nicknames, right? I've had many nicknames. One of my nicknames was Cactus Cody. Why? Because when I start growing this out, it looks like one guy called me Cactus Cody. When I was in college, it was Codog. Or Codex Vaticanus was another nickname of mine. Some of us, we like nicknames. One of them, someone here calls me Faster Pastor, Sharpshooting Master. I don't know why he gets that one, but we, we have nicknames that we like, but then we have nicknames sometimes that we don't like, right? When I was in junior high, I had a belt, a leather belt, because we came out from Appleton, Wisconsin. We drove all the way out to Washington, and on the way there, we stopped at Cody, Wyoming, because how could I not stop at Cody, Wyoming? And I got a belt buckle that was the size of a hubcap. said Cody on it, because everyone's cowboys back there, you know. And on the leather belt, it had Cody on it. And somehow my belt loop was covering this C, and it said Odie. And if you remember Garfield and all that, his, the dog, so they started calling me Odie and Cootie. I didn't like to be called Cootie. Oh, you're a dog, huh? Odie, the dog. Oh, Cootie, you got cooties. Some nicknames we get we really don't like. How many of you have had nicknames that you did not like? And all right, some of you are still resentful against that little kid that called you so-and-so or whatever, right? We, names are given to us sometimes because of who we are or sometimes because just people are rude. And sometimes they really speak of who we are. When I was in high school... I had this poster. You'll see a picture of it here. In fact, I don't know if they sell it anymore. You remember this poster back in the, the 80s? I, I don't think they sell this poster anymore. How many of you had this poster or remember this one? This is a, I, I remember I had this in my room and I was like, yes, look at all these cool names of Jesus. All these names, they got little, you, can, you can't really see them here, it's all blurry, but every little phrase or name or nickname or, or something that he was called has the passage to what it was. In fact, a lot of these come from 
Psalms and Isaiah. Look at these great names, and of course, right in the heart of it is I Am, the great I Am. And I don't know, here, hopefully there, they have John eight fifty eight, which speaks of Jesus. This I Am poster was profound to me. What's interesting about this, though, is all of these are pretty positive. All of these speak of some cool things that kind of elate us. One of the names missing there is Man of Sorrows. And I, I almost have a feeling that they didn't want to put that on there because I'd be like, oh, they kind of, ooh, this is a, look at, all, look at the rainbow colors, it's be- beautiful. You put Man of Sorrows on there, ooh. Christ was born before the creation of the world. In fact, he created all things for his glory. He is the great I am. He is all these things, but he is more than what we sometimes see. Sometimes the names given to him in Scripture are hard. And today we're looking at one of the most famous passages, Isaiah 53. So turn in Isaiah 53, and if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up, and we'll take a look at the next slide here, and here's kind of the breakdown again of this passage. This is, in many ways, a song, a piece of poetry, an artwork that describes, depicts who this great servant of the Lord is to be and what he will do. And we see that primarily in how this is laid out. The first part matches the last part. The second part matches the fourth part. But the main section, which we're getting to next weekend, is the heart of this servant. He is the one that will be that perfect remedy for our sins. This is the beauty of salvation. He is our substitution. And we have seen in the first part that he will be exalted. He will be lifted high. He will be placed in a great place of honor. Yet it's done through suffering. Again, this is something that confuses most of us. How can this passage speak of someone who is suffering, goes through degradation, goes through hand-in-hand of painful steps? How can someone be exalted and great who is so low? To many, this is a supposed contradiction. And Christ comes in a lowly social standing, but high in a spiritual standing. Praises for the unlikely happening of this great Messiah to come. This is just a mystery. In fact, you got your finger in Isaiah there. Go to Revelation. It's it's an easier book to find than Isaiah. Revelation chapter 5. Remember when I was in school, seminary, one of my professors said, you will with me memorize the seven songs in Revelation. I said, yes, I will. And this was one of the first ones we memorized together. Look at Revelation 5, verse 9. Here is this supposed contradiction. He is exalted. He is great and worthy. Yet how it's done is staggering. Look at at this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll. And open its seals because you were <gasps> slain. And with your blood you purchased men from, for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Look at verse 12. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb! who was (gasps) slain. This is profound, people. But look at me. 
Why? Because of our sin. Why? Because we think we're something. We think we could do it on our own. The praises for the unlikely happening. <laughs> we don't get praises for sad things today. We, we have sorrow. We, we mourn. When great things happen, then we're elated. This person's worthy because they accomplish great things. And here we will see in this passage, this servant accomplished the greatest things in a staggering way for his people. It is through his suffering and death, the means, that the victorious outcome happens and the ultimate success of his mission. And that's the last part. So today we're going to look at Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, the rejection. So take a look. In fact, all I have on, I have three more slides and that's it. Hence these verses. I'm not here to give you some cool words so you can go, oh, that's a great little phrase. Let's just look at the stark reality of the beauty of this passage. So verse 1, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? Who? Who has believed our message? This here is more an exclamation than a question. Who has believed it? No one. This will stun nations. Remember the passage before? Kings' mouths will be, they're in awe. People will stammer. They, They won't understand. No one will believe this message. Why would a deliverer so great come to such a great fall as this? Who would believe that? No, no one. This can only be understood by looking at the other servant songs. The first two are focused on his true success as a servant. He will be successful. It will happen. Remember Isaiah 42. He will let the nations know. To the islands, to the utmost regions, his name will be exalted. Yet, the last two of these speak then more of his suffering. In fact, Suffering is a huge part of this. Turn to Acts. Acts chapter 3. It's good that we had the book of Psalms before some of this. Because without that, we would be really jarred. But as you recall... Psalms, when they speak of the Messiah, most of them speak of his reigning aspect as King, Messiah. The others speak of his great suffering. Acts chapter 3, verse, let's start with verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by your own proper power or godliness we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disown him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. Christ came. He was going to free them. 
And as we'll see in this passage, the Israelites were all excited, like, here will come this great, mighty person to free us. He should look like Arnold. He'll have a chainsaw and fireworks. Let's let it happen. But he came and they did not see. He came and they missed out. And Peter says, look what you did. You killed the author of life and he suffered through this. Acts chapter 4, 27. Just move over to the next one. Chapter here. Indeed, Herod, Herod and Pontius Pilate met, this is verse 27, to gather with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand what is to happen. So pause. Always remember this. In the most horrific event in the history of time, the death of Jesus, God was not up in heaven going, Oh, bummer, man. Look, this is bad. I, oh, no, my son. This is totally in control of God the Father which he decided beforehand what should happen now Lord consider their heart, their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus horrible things happen yet God was completely in control. To the unbelieving world, this is all wrong. How could God come, take on flesh, and suffer and die? That doesn't make sense. Look at Isaiah again, 53. Who has believed our message? To an unbelieving world, this is crazy. But let's look at this passage. Who has believed our message? Pronouns are very important. In fact, in this passage, I I spent almost a half an hour just looking at the pronouns, how the Lord speaks, the Lord speaks of his servant, this speaks of Christ, and then it speaks of the people of Israel and the prophet speaking. In this passage, this speaks not just of the world, but rather of the Israelites. Who has believed our message? message. Paul uses this in Romans 10. Turn to Romans 10. Don't you like it? You're like, oh, turn in all these places. Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 16. As you're turning there, When the Savior comes, he would be unimpressive to them. People would not notice. Romans 10, 16 says this, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? He's quoting Isaiah, this passage. When he came, people would not believe the good news. How could a Savior come like this? Israel was blind to it. They could not see it. Yet some did. And that's the beauty of it. People want this superficial beauty for their Savior to come. They want someone to come and save them in a mighty way. Yet many did not see that he would be, here it is, a man of sorrows. The name that even on our poster we don't want to put because it doesn't really fit with the picture we have of the great Messiah. People did not flock to him. They didn't come and just be like, oh, this is it. Because they had a different agenda. Who would believe this message? Not many. But Christ came, submitted to the will of the Father, and went the way of the cross. 
And this is not the worldly advice today. I have this John 12, 37 through 38 quotes this also. Romans 10 quotes this. That the state of Israel's rejection of Christ was profound. Even though he did miracles, they could not see. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? The prophet speaks of he and the community of believers. He speaks of one who is it's our message that the Lord has given to us. People reject God, but the message is real. Look at the next part. To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? What does this mean here? Israel, many of them fail to see the mighty power, the strength. Whenever you see the arm of the Lord, think this. Big arm wrestling championship person with huge biceps. Arm of the Lord means might, strength, and power. I go to the gym, not because I like going to the gym. You know me, I'd rather be outside, climbing up mountains, chewing on trees. That's my, that's my place to work out. But on rainy days when I don't have a chance to, I will go to the gym and keep my body in shape as much as I can. And I find it interesting, if you've ever been to the gym... I almost want to take a tally, but I don't want to embarrass people. I don't know how to find out the, the true stats on this, but maybe I should ask the guy that's there at the checkout counter when you beep and you're in. There are so many people that go there, and it's, it's, it's almost funny. They sit in front of the mirror and just go, oh. You know, they got the little tight T-shirt on. and these, for, It's real. There are some like that. They're just sitting there going, oh, and they look in the mirror. Then when they're done, they just go, oh, and then looking at their arms. They're just all ripped, and then I do this. Then I look at their legs and I go, wow, those are kind of small. <laughs> they forget leg day, right? They're all about, oh, look how big I am. And they got these puny legs like my legs. If you see my legs in shorts, you don't want to. This here is the mighty, strong arm of the Lord. He will come in a powerful way. To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? The people closest to Christ, his own people, they reject it. They don't see it. This is unbelievable. But here it is. Back then, in the days of Isaiah, in the days when Jesus walked this sod, in the day when he put him on the cross, the people did. Listen to this. It took faith to believe. Amen? People kind of forget about this. In the New Testament, what did it take to, to become a Christian? Faith. In the Old Testament, what did it take to become God's children? Faith. It wasn't works. It was always faith. Just as in the past, today it takes great faith. And the only way we can have faith and break someone's disbelief is, take a look at this, his powerful arm. God's mighty arm enables us to believe. Without that, we would be lost in our own misery. It's only by his great strength. That's why this weekend is one of my favorite weekends of all. This Reformation heritage that we have as evangelicals is it's Christ alone, faith alone, this word of God alone, by grace alone. God's mighty arm. We cannot convert ourselves. As you know, as a medic, I've dealt with people who are dead clinically dead no breathing no heart never once did i ever see someone like that who was completely out grab the pads and go boom i revived myself thank you people for providing that for me we cannot break our own unbelief 
it's only by his mighty, powerful, victorious strength revealed through Jesus Christ. Praise God, amen? Because if it was up to me, I would be up, down, up, down, fail, believe, yes, no, I don't know. But it's by his mighty, powerful arm that we believe. And that's what we need today. And I encourage you, this coming Tuesday. What's Tuesday? What's special about Tuesday? Election Day. And it's interesting in the church, we have many that just say, oh, the church would be all about elections, promoting people. Then, they, oh, there should be separation of church and state. I will never forget when I was in seminary, studying the Holy Word of God and having a great voice so I could proclaim the great Word of God and knowing and following Jesus. It was Election Day. Time to vote for the president. And I was so getting ready, and I was like, okay, get my, you know, I was doing like Hebrew or something, and I was just all nerdy. I'm like, I gotta go vote. And I went to one place, and that was not the right place. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna miss my vote. I gotta go vote somewhere. I gotta make sure it counts. And I was waiting at a stoplight, and I pulled into a parking lot and I said, wait a second. What's more powerful, my vote or an hour of prayer? I was so concerned. I gotta vote, and I forgot about the power of prayer, and I said, Well, they are both important. Listen, we have a privilege to vote. Please vote. But I would encourage you, pray more this coming Tuesday. That God would place the people he has determined, either for our blessing or our judgment, so that people would see the powerful arm of God. I want the right people to be in there, not just so they would line up with my type of political stance, so that people would be awakened so they would see Jesus. Right? And sometimes you look at history. The Lord places people to awaken the church, to awaken and break their disbelief. So church, in your disbelief, Seek the Lord and know that only He is the one that enables and can convert the heart. And in this world, this time that we need good news out there, it's the power of the Lord that will do what He did for Israel, He will do for us today. What they could not do, He does. And what we cannot do today, He will do by His mighty, powerful arm. The same for us today. Who has believed our message? Not many. And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? The Lord is the one who awakens. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. He grew up like a weak one. A tender green shoot. In a dry ground, like like we're coming out of dry ground. What kind of person is this? This is what's stunning. Who could believe this? If you want a leader, you want him to be strong and mighty and powerful, not a weaselly little root and green plant, dry ground. He's going to wither. Here is the figure of speech used to convey this unexpected nature of his ministry. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. This is not about good looks. This is not about something like, oh, we will know. And here's something very interesting. The way in which he set about delivering his people is not Here I am, glance at me, I will save you. One of my heroes is George Washington. And it, it, I don't understand this. When I read writings and letters that were written about him, people were there at that time, this, this part catches me. All the soldiers were tired and weary, or some of the reports. We were hungry. In comes a man on the horse. No one knew it was George Washington except maybe the the colonel or whoever. All the foot soldiers, they didn't know who this guy was, but as soon as he would walk into a room, be on a horse, go next to the soldiers, 
there was something about his presence that people would just be drawn to him. Did you ever meet someone like that? Were you just drawn to, is there something magnetic about him? There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. As one of my teachers says this, this is the way in which he set about delivering his people was just as shocking and putting off as though to have the ugliest man in the group of best-looking people. This isn't saying that he was ugly and stuff, but it was shocking that this person, here's a group of the best-looking people, and he put Joe Blow in there? This doesn't make sense. Many leaders are drawn to other leaders who have a certain magnetic approach. They're attractive, charming, type A personality. This person conveys to people what they want. And it's sad today that we still sheep pick people like that today, don't we? We pick the good-looking, the charming, their magnetic. They got all the words right. They can do it. Oh, look at how perfect that person is. I'm glad they wore braces because it's perfect now. Unlike Pastor Cody, his teeth are crooked. We look for those perfect person that has the charm and charisma and winsome to lead. Christ doesn't come like that. Instead of being this great, mighty oak, he came as a tender green shoot in dry ground. He didn't come like an oak. He came like scotch broom. Who would want that? That's how he comes. And people are shocked by that. Christ did not fit the criteria of what is desirable and winsome, attractive or appealing in appearance and character. No. Tell you what, if it was me, remember this. If I came to save the world, chainsaw and fireworks. But God chose an infant baby? No, 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 no. In a manger? No, no, no. You, you can't win the world like that. A bunch of shepherds around? This story stinks. But he comes in a mighty, powerful way. How can this be the strong arm of the Lord? Not only is this message to be rejected by people, but he himself will be rejected. This doesn't make sense. Because this doesn't even fit Old Testament style. Here's a couple verses. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. Samuel's picking someone. One look, he says this at someone. One look, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before us. Look, there he is. 1 Samuel 9, 2. Kish had a son named Saul. Was handsome, a young man, as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Joseph, you one look at him and, man, he was a handsome boy. These are the phrases used in the Hebrew. These are not used of Jesus. He comes in a way that shocks people. He does not come as we think he should come. Look at the last part of this verse. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing in his appearance. And that is the heart of a servant. Let me just quickly go to today. Christianity is not about how winsome and attractive our buildings can be. Oh my, we're in trouble. We're at a school. True Christianity is in the hearts of true believers who see the beauty of Christ and live it out. And wherever they go, people will be drawn to them and say, what? You're just average, but there's something about you. Help me. And it can be come down to the true essence of the gospel where you sit down and pray with someone, or it can be a conversation that swings things to godly things. Use every day, redeem every day, to live in the now, not so you can be flashy and glorious, so you can redeem this time and let the redeemed of the Lord know. 
Look at John 12. We've got to turn to this passage. John chapter 12. Jesus, he does some great things here. He's doing miracles. He's performing wonderful things. He's, he's speaking of his death. He's doing great things that the people around him should know. John chapter 12, starting with verse 37. Even after had, Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? And whom, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he says, for another place in Isaiah says, nothing to attract us to him. Not even his miracles would awake the people. Even John the Baptist doubted. But it was the humble form of a servant. God chose poverty over wealth. He chose servanthood over power. He chose the simple to attract God's people to himself. Let's look at the last verse that we're looking at here. Verse 3, Isaiah 53. He was despised. And this word is used twice here. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised. Other words here are worthless, unworthy of attention. He was despised and no one cared. They esteemed him not. And here's an accounting word. They esteemed him not. A word that has reckoning to value. So basically the people made him a zero. In accounting terms, instead of making him a great number, they, esteemed, they brought him to nothing. Look at the zero. Bullying didn't start in our schools. It was already back then. To the humble man in human form, God was considered a zero. He was despised and rejected. And here's this phrase. A man of sorrows. What what, what does that mean? Well, number one, He had to become like us to save us. No sacrifice could do it. In the Gospels, we see a touch of the beauty, humility, and the tears of God in the person of Jesus. He was a man of sorrows. Matthew 26 speaks of these sorrows. He's praying the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He has sorrow in his heart. Even his own disciples, we're not going to pray. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8 speak of the man of sorrows. He has sorrows. But listen to this. It is not just because of physical pain. I thought about this. I thought as a former medic, I could sit and just talk about all the sorrow he went through, the pain and suffering and the crown of thorns and all this. But it's more than just the pain physical pain. He was a man of sorrows partially because of the sin he saw in us. His love for his own people is so great that he himself would take our place. We deserve judgment and when that comes down Bam! He slips in. Because he's a man of sin. He sorrows for us. He sees our sin. Matthew chapter 9 at the end. He is broken, has compassion. It says, Jesus has compassion on the people because they are sheep without a shepherd. He identifies 
He has great sorrow. Luke 22, 28 also speaks, reminds us Jesus was familiar with sufferings, not just physical, but also seeing his children in bondage. There's a movie, I don't know where we saw this, maybe it was a couple days ago or, or something, Amber and I, we were at someone's house and the TV was on and they showed a preview of a of kind of a famous movie that was a couple years ago called Taken. It's you know, fictional about some guy and his daughter decides to go over to Europe with a couple of her friends and then she gets abducted. And she's like, they're coming for me. And he's like, they will take you, but don't worry. And then the, the, the person who takes him, you know, this is all fictional, picks up the phone and he's breathing on the phone and the, the main character's like, just so you know, I have a certain set of skills that are made to find people like you and hunt you down and I will destroy you. You know, and the whole movie's like him going to save his daughter who gets sold into human trafficking. If, those of you who have children, if any of your children were taken and you had any chance, let's say they were taken by someone really bad and nasty and you saw them walking away, would you stand there and go, well, hope it works out for them. Golly gee willikers. I hope I train them well. Hopefully they know some karate moves. If you had a chance to go and rescue them, would you not do something? Would you not raise your voice and say, stop? I remember when I was like, just got my first car. It was so cool. I was like, yeah. thing was an old beater, station wagon. And I just waxed it up, and it was so cool. Pulling into the, I, was, I went shopping for my first time. I remember, I was like, oh, I was like, cool. And all of a sudden, out of the store came a guy running. Stop! Stop! That's my car! And someone took off with their car. And I was like, oh, I should probably lock my car up. But I was like, no one's going to take this junker. But I will never forget his desperation. He had cowboy boots on, running. Ty's the only guy here that can run in cowboy boots, okay? He was running his cowboy boots going, that's my, it's just a car. Imagine your own child being taken. Would you not raise your voice? Would you not do all you can to save and rescue? He's a man of sorrows. He knows our bondage. And he will do all he can. As I said a couple weeks ago, there is no price too high for God to pay for his own people in exchange for his own people. People in exchange for his own. Pause. Here's a phrase I say all the time. How could you not worship him forever? That he came, he was a man of sorrows. He saw our suffering, our poverty, and came to rescue us. How can a poor man save a poor man? Because that's how he came. Jesus is the man of sorrows. He came, he understands grief. So let's just set aside even salvation, the grand beauty of it, and even talk about day-to-day suffering. Like we prayed for. We have someone in our church that this week was suffering. She was overwhelmed with just emotion and drama and just. God is a man. He took on flesh, Jesus. He walked this earth completely divine, yet, there's the mystery. He is acquainted and understands our grief and bore our sufferings in our place. So people, in any kind of suffering you have, any kind of doubt you have, turn to the man of sorrows. I was talking with someone this week about different types of people. I even forget the conversation, but we were talking about, wouldn't it be great if, if there were doctors who had compassion, who weren't just there for the money? Wouldn't it be great to have some kind of doctors who are like, you know, I'm really here for you. I'm not really here for my cool Lamborghini and all the cool things I have. Once in a while you meet doctors like that, correct? But a doctor who truly cares and understands. If you 
lost a body part, let's say you lost your leg, wouldn't it be great to go to a doctor who already lost the leg? So they would understand, like, oh, here's someone who knows. Not someone like, oh, okay, we'll get you something and we'll patch you up, go on. Next person, check. Jesus is the man of sorrows who understands our poverty and the sin that we carried. He carried for us. Turn to Jesus. Do not worry. Turn in prayer to Christ. Let's go back to this verse. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We did not put him up. It's interesting here is that pronoun again, we. Here is the prophet Isaiah speaking collectively also of his nation. We did not do it right. And woe to you that says, well, we did it right. No, we do not do it right at times either. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. Just as someone with a no-name running for election who doesn't have it all together, they don't even have money to put their face on the election ballot, they're the one who's going to be the Savior. They're the one who gets it. They have no polar significance at first, but truly, He is the Savior. So what does this mean for us today? Two things. Let's, here it is. Number one, we in the church, we love to appeal to and be drawn to even beauty today. There's something I love reading about the monastic period, which has its issues. But the thing that draws me to reading some of their writings once in a while is the simplicity and the freedom found in simplicity. We today in our churches, we love building huge buildings and just we got more people so let's add on millions and millions thinking that will bring people to Jesus Th- those can be useful I'm not going against that but is it not the simplicity and the beauty of the simple message of the gospel that draws people we love things that we are attracted to trust me have you seen my wife I love things that are attractive but when it comes to the gospel, my sin is not attractive. And the suffering he went through, he's the man of sorrows that is not attractive. Yet, there is beauty in that ugliness of salvation. Amen? We need to remind ourselves of the beauty of the cross. He, the cross, is beautiful. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, it says, because he didn't fit their category. To the Gentiles, to us, that is just foolishness. You don't win the world as a savior like that. But he came in a mighty powerful way to win our hearts who are so caught into shameful disappointment. And with hearts like ours, we should esteem him today because we see it. Ultimately, it comes down to this. We must worship him. This passage here, you've got to turn to this. Revelation 21. This is... I almost thought about bringing mirrors for each of you to look in a mirror. Not to be rude, but to get to the point. I would have little... I'm not even sure what ladies have to take off their makeup. All of you ladies would have to take off makeup. Guys, you'd have to just mess up your hair and just look like you do in the morning. You think, we think we're beautiful. We think we're something. He understood our sin. He became sin for us. Not so that we could be beautiful and like, oh, but so that he, through us, could be beautiful. Listen, I love this. 
Revelation 21, great chapter. Go memorize it. It's great. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We, the bride of Christ, are going to be beautifully dressed. We were dead in sin. We were once in bondage, once not alive. We are now alive. We will be beautifully dressed. It doesn't say, you're going to be beautiful, but we are dressed. We are clothed in his work, his righteousness. That is wonderful. How could I not worship him? In my ugliness, he had to become ugly. In my sin, he became sin for me. So that he would be glorified. And I would become his. And out of that people, someday, and I even believe now, we are clothed in his righteousness. We will come down beautifully dressed for her husband. Beautifully dressed. I am in his righteousness. And here's the line. Jesus was covered in shame. This is by Alistair Begg. Jesus is covered in shame so that those of us who have shameful lives may be covered with his glory. The man of sorrows, he understands our sorrow. Turn to him every day. The man of sorrows suffered painful death, but also suffered seeing his own people in sin and saved his own by the mighty power of God in a very humble, unique way. That's the God I serve. And I worship him because he took my place when I deserve death. Amen. Let's pray.